is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter who has sold over 30 million albums worldwide and has achieved 14 number one singles. His music and artistry has touched the lives of so many, including mine, which is why I'm so excited to welcome him to the Mira Elizabeth Show. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm good, Rebecca. How are you? Good. How's your day been? Uh, beautiful and like our first really sunny, hot day in L.A. in a while. So uh, I, I love that. It's why I moved to L.A. Oh, that's awesome. It's really rainy out here, but I'm hoping it'll warm up soon. But thank you for taking your time and stopping by today. Really My pleasure. Fun. Yeah. Um, and I have a burning question for you. How old were you when you wrote your first song and what did it mean to you? Um, I think... I was about 15 when I wrote my first song and it was um, about a girl who I had a crush on in school. So I was probably 15. What am I, what would I be a freshman? Something like that. Yeah. But freshman or sophomore, um, sophomore probably. Um, I was pretty shy with girls. And so I, and I was a big fan of uh, Elvis movies. So I used to watch, and every Elvis Presley movie had the same plot, which was that Elvis would have a crush on a girl and she acted like she didn't like him. And then he would sing her a song and then she would fall in love with him. And I thought, that's what I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm going to write my own song. And uh, of course, it didn't work. I mean, it worked later, but it, in high school, it didn't really work. But I wrote, I started, I really loved the idea of communicating through a song because sometimes it's easier to, like if you have the, ability or the talent to write music and lyrics, sometimes it's easier to communicate that way than just saying something to someone or talking to someone. And so I started to use songs as sort of a communication tool with girls to like, so it would help me with my insecurity and my shyness. And, um, and it just, it's just like, it, it happened so fast that it just took over. Like, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to write more songs and it, and then it became something that was more than just about trying to impress a girl. It was about like really learning the craft of songwriting and trying to become a really good songwriter. That's awesome. And of course, the rest is history. But you were discovered by American singer, songwriter and record producer Lionel Richie at the young age of 18. Can you explain that experience to us? Yeah, it's um quite a story. Uh, I was 17, actually. I was a senior in high school. And... Um, I had written maybe four or five songs. And because my father had a recording studio, I was able to make demos of my songs 
that sounded pretty good. They sounded pretty professional. And back then, this would have been 1981, um, you know, what we put music on really to, to play for people were these little cassette tapes. And so I, these plastic cassette tapes. And so I had my demo tape on my songs and I knew a guy uh, who was in college um, at Emory University, actually in Atlanta. And he was roommates with a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who had something to do with the Commodores, which was Lionel's group before he went solo. And I, they said, yeah, we're going to try to get your, your cassette tape to Lionel Richie. I was like, yeah, sure you are. You know, cause he was the biggest star in the world. Maybe besides Michael Jackson, Lionel was the biggest person in the music business at that time. And it was like, I don't know, three weeks went by and my phone rang at my parents' house. And it was Lionel Richie and he had wow. heard my tape and he called me at home and just said, man, I heard your tape. I think you're really good. You're really talented. And he was just really encouraging. He probably talked to me for 20 or 30 minutes. He was, and I was such a fan. It wasn't just that Lionel Richie was a big star and, and could help me. It was that I was a huge fan of his. I knew every Lionel Richie song. I knew every Commodore song. And he was just um, so gracious and he said, look, I don't, I don't know that there's anything I can really do to help you, but I can tell you this, you should move to L.A. Because, you know, I was living in Chicago at the time. And he said, you know, you, if you really want to be serious about getting into the music business, it's not in Chicago. It's in L.A. or New York. And I think you should come to L.A. That's where I am. But he said, but he didn't make me any promises or anything like that. So I graduated from high school. I scrapped my plans to go to college for at least the time being. My parents even were supportive of that. They said, you can always go back to school, you know. Mm -hmm. And I went out to LA and got an apartment and I stopped and Lionel, uh, he had given me his number and he said, if you, you come to LA, you know, give me a call. And he was making his first solo album. And so he invited me down to the studio just to watch, just to, just to, to say hello and meet me. And I was so nervous and excited. And so I was sitting there and they were, uh, he was singing background vocals on this song called You Are, which was, became a huge hit. And they were struggling trying to figure out the right sound, the right blend of singers. There was It was Lionel and uh, another guy singer and a girl singer. And I could see he was getting a little frustrated. And he, at one point, looked through the glass. You know, there's a big studio and then there's this glass. And then behind the glass is the, the control room. And I was sitting on the couch looking out into the studio watching them. And he pointed to me through the glass and he said, come here. And I went out and said, what? And he said, I want you to try to sing this part and and David, you changed that part and Deborah, you do this part. And then he went in the control room and they played the tape in our headphones and and I sang and Lionel went, that's the sound I need. Wow. And I had a job. And he said, come back tomorrow. I've got another song I want to put you on. And then he said, look, I don't have, I don't know how much more I can uh, use you as a background singer, but I got a lot more work to do on the album. So if you want to be here and just watch, you're welcome to be here. Now that Rebecca was like even an even bigger gift to give me because it was sort of like going to the ultimate record producer masterclass and watching, watching how he worked with musicians, watched how he did lead vocals, watched how they mixed the record, watched how they did horn, played like did horn sections and every aspect of making records. I got to just watch and soak it in. And that album was his first album. It just 
was huge. And then I sang on the next album. And so, and then Lionel, at some point in that first year, he recommended me as a singer to Kenny Rogers, who was a great friend of his and who was a huge star back then. And Kenny hired me to sing background vocals on something that led to me writing songs for Kenny Rogers. So in a way, Lionel indirectly not only got me out to L.A. to, to get going, but even helped me get my songwriting career going. So I owe him everything. And we're still friends to this day. We still text each other. Um, he's, uh, he's just the most kind, gracious, wonderful, funny, wonderful guy. Wow. That must've been surreal. Yeah. yeah. Still, I still can't quite, I still can't quite, uh, wrap my brain. Can I tell you a really quick story about Lionel? That's that I think that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, you can. So about a year before the pandemic, uh, I got this great invitation to, to go to London and perform right before Barbara Streisand in uh, at a place called Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. And Hyde Park does these summer concerts every year, and it's massive. And so there's the A stage, which is where the headliner plays, and that's usually about 60,000 people. And then there's the B stage, which can be up to 10,000 people. If, you know, It's a smaller space, but it's still a lot of people. And Barbara said, I'm doing Hyde Park, would you like to come and be on before me on the B stage? And I was like, of course. So I went and my band and I were playing and we closed the show with uh, my, probably my biggest song, which is called right here waiting. And the whole crowd, it was, there was packed 10,000 people at least. And everybody's singing with me. And, um, and I knew that the next night at the same place, it was going to be Stevie wonder and Lionel. With Stevie Wonder on the A stage and Lionel on the B stage. And I wasn't sure if I was going to get to see him or not. But when I finished the concert and it was so exciting and um, I saw that there was a text, I was back in my dressing room and I saw that there was a text and it said, and it was Lionel. And he said, I'm sitting on my hotel balcony across from Hyde Park, listening to 10,000 people sing along with you. And I'm so proud of you. And I said, man, that means everything to me, but I couldn't have done it without you. You're the reason that I'm here. You know, it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Man, yeah. came full circle, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, really did. Yeah, that's great. And fast forward now, um, of course, your season, you know, as you just heard, you, you spent many years in this profession. What do you usually like to write about or what type of songs do you like to write? Um, I'd say that the overwhelming majority are relationship songs, love songs or, but, and, you know, I find that the well is never ending when it comes to songs about love, because it can be about, you know, I heard Sting say something, which I thought was dead on. Right. He, cause he writes a lot of love songs too. Mm-hmm. And he said, if, if you, if you write a song, I love you and you love me, it's pretty limited. And it's especially hard to get poetry out of that because it's just, it's going to get too sweet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, if I say I love you, but you love somebody else, then all of a sudden there's all these emotions that you can write about and tap into. And I also think that, you know, 
even though I'm, I've never been happier in my life, I still write breakup songs. I still write songs about being heartbroken or longing for somebody else because I have experienced that. And that feeling is never gone. You know, I, I can always remember how that felt to have my heart broken or to want to be with somebody who didn't want, wasn't interested. Um, so I think that that's been the, the, the most consistent topic but as I get older, you know, I'll be 60 this year. So I, there comes a point where you got to stop writing, you know, puppy love songs. And, and so I write, you know, on this last album I did um, that came out last year, there's everything from, there's some political stuff. Um, there's songs about um, my own sanity, my own mental health about, you know, like being confused about life and, um, I've written quite a few songs about that, about just sort of being in a dark place and trying to come out of it. And, but I think if anything, I write songs, it's funny because I write songs that are very personal to me, but they end up being very universal because no matter how personal, I've written songs about, for instance, I, I wrote a couple of songs over the years about uh, losing my father when I was 33. We were really, really close. And it was sort of like therapy for me to write about how much I missed him. And it was, of course, very personal. I wasn't thinking about whether anybody would like it. I didn't care, you know. But then these songs would come out and people would write me on social media or they would stop me in an elevator or whatever and go, man, that song that you wrote about your dad, and we played it at my dad's funeral or, you know. It's just amazing how you reach people even when you don't mean to. Of course. And speaking of that my grandfather on my mother's side was a soldier and he passed away in the vietnam war and when mm. i was four the veterans in my mother's hometown had a memorial for him and i sang dance with my father so i uh -huh. have, yeah and so i also have some very precious memories associated with that song and i love that thank you and you won your first grammy for that song in 2003 which is actually the year i was born and yeah. you you lost your father, and so did Luther Vandross. What made the both mm -hmm. of you come together and write that song? Well, we had been friends for a while by the time we wrote that song. We'd written, um, we met in 1991 at the, uh, or maybe 1990, uh, at the American Music Awards. We were both up for awards that night. I was up for, I think, favorite pop male singer, and he was up for favorite R&B male singer. And I remember he won. I didn't win mine. He won his. And we met backstage, you know, at, at those award shows. After the awards are handed out, you end up back in what they call the press room. And it's people asking you questions, taking pictures, interviewing you. And you're back there for like 15 minutes. And our awards were next to each other. They were right after each other. So we were both back in this room at the same time. So we met, I immediately was like, I did one of these things because I just I just adored him so much. I was such a fan. And shockingly to me, he was like, man, I love this song of yours and that song. So we had a lot of mutual respect for each other. And there was just, I'm sure even at your young age, you know, you have people who you get to know over time that you really, really like and ha like hanging out with. And then there are people you meet and you instantly get this feeling like that's my person. Like that's that's going to be my friend. And there was something so instant, there was an instant chemistry between me and Luther. And so we talked and even laughed, I think, about some stuff. And then um, 
we were both on tour at that time, but he said, here, here's my, and this is before cell phones. So he said, here's my number. Just call me or I'll call you and we'll try to find each other at hotels. And so we started calling each other at different hotels. Like I'd be playing in Philadelphia and he would be playing in Chicago. And after our concerts, we would get, we would talk on the phone. How was your gig? How's the room service menu at your hotel? You know, like that kind of stuff. And we developed a friendship over months, just talk. We would talk on the phone for hours. And then we both came back. He was living in LA and I was living in LA. And um, I, my first son, Brandon, had just been born. And Luther came over to the house and had brought this beautiful gift for Brandon. And, and he just started to come to, my, to our house and hang out. He would come over and watch movies. We would go to his house to watch movies. He and I ended up starting to write songs together. He sang background vocals on a bunch of my records. Um, and so by the time Dance With My Father came around, we'd been friends for seven or eight years. And he really helped me through losing my dad. Um, when my dad died in 97, you know, we'd already been friends now, what, six years, something like that. And I just remember I was in such a bad way. And he called me, Luther called me, and we talked for hours and hours and hours. And he was just, I don't remember what it was, but there was just like what he, whatever he said made me feel better. And it was, he really helped me. So, you know, five, six years later, he called me and he said, I got an idea for a song called Dance With My Father. And that's all he had was just the title and the idea. And he said, I have to write it with you. And I said, yeah, you do. <laughs> so... Uh, I wrote a piece of music and sent it to him. That's how we always wrote songs. I would send him music and then he would write lyrics to the music. We never wrote a song in the same room together. We'd have dinner together and hang out together, but we didn't write together, like sit down in a room and write a song together. Um, and the next thing I knew, he had written this incredible lyric to the music, went in the studio, recorded it, mixed it. I remember he called me and he said, this is the most important song of my career. Wow. He just knew, he just knew it was something about it that was special, you know? Mm -hmm. And 10 days after he mixed that record, he had a stroke. Yeah. So we didn't lose him for another year, but it was, it was a real ripoff because even when the night we won the Grammy for song of the year, you know, he wasn't there, he was in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So he experienced it. I, I went to see him right after I went to visit him a few times in the hospital, but and we got to sort of celebrate together, but he was in really bad shape. And so we didn't get to have that experience of two great friends winning the Grammy for Song of the Year. I said, we would have been out partying all night, laughing, really celebrating that victory, but we couldn't do that. And so for me, it was, I was obviously very grateful to win, but it was not the experience that I would have liked to have had, you know? Right, but... I'm sure you treasure and cherish all the memories that you had with Luther. I do. I I have pictures on my phone. I talk about him all the time. You know, my, my I have three sons. They all knew him. They we all talk about him like he's like he's just sort of still here. You know, I tell I have so many funny stories about him. He was just a really special, remarkable man. Yeah, I've always gotten that impression for sure. Yeah. Seems like such a special person. Yeah. Absolutely. And I want to talk about one of your biggest hits too, Right Here Waiting. What was the songwriting process for that song? Did you think it was going to be a hit? 
I no. Uh, I was. Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. It was in 1987, 88. Um, and I was touring, and she was working, and we went. There was a long period where we didn't see each other. And again, this is before cell phones, this is before Zoom, before FaceTime. So being in different countries for a long period of time, if you're in a relationship, that was really hard. Like you could get on the phone, but it would be really an expensive phone call. And, or you could write each other letters, which would maybe get there in two weeks, you know? And so we, I just missed her. I was really sad. And I sat down at the piano one afternoon and right here waiting just fell out of me, just came through me. Like it was the easiest song I ever wrote. I hardly ever write music and lyrics at the same time. I usually write music very easily, but then it takes me a while to get, to figure out what the lyrics should be. And with Right Here Waiting, it was like, it all just came out. And I made a little demo of it, a little cheesy little recording of it just to send to her. And I remember thinking, I was about to start making my second album and it was a rock album. So, I mean, it was like all mostly up-tempo songs. And, and I remember thinking this song totally doesn't fit the album. So, and it also just felt too personal, felt like a love letter that I would be exposing to the world, you know? And so I had no intention of recording it. I thought maybe I'll just, you know, try to give it to somebody else. And I finally did try to give it to, I tried to give it to Barbara Streisand. Um, she had asked me at the time to write her a song, so I offered it to her. And she said, wow, I love the music, but I, you're going to have to rewrite the words because I'm not going to be right here waiting for anybody. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like her. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like her, totally. Yeah. And, you know, she and, I are, she and I are dear friends to this day. We see each other pretty regularly, and I, I kid her all the time about how she turned that song down. But it was actually a blessing because... By the time she turned it down, I had played it for a few people who I trust and friends of mine and stuff. And they were like, are you dumb? Like, this is a huge song. And I just, I've never, Rebecca, I've never written a song that I thought was a hit when I wrote it. I, I've been surprised every time. I just write songs that I like. I don't, I don't know what a hit song is. You know, I hear songs on the radio sometimes that sound like, oh, that makes sense that that's a hit song. But I've also had so many other songs I've heard that don't become hits that I think are great. So I don't, I've never been a good judge of that, but I, but I recognize that people were reacting to right here waiting in such a powerful way. Um, so again, I put it on the album, not thinking anything about that would happen to it. And it became the biggest song of my life. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, to what you were saying about how your songs resonate with, can resonate powerfully with a lot of people. My parents were teenagers in the 80s and, you know, they grew up hearing your music and it's the soundtrack to um, a good chunk of their years. You know, your songs help people get through their lives and get through experiences. Has a fan ever shared a heartfelt story with you? Oh, yeah, all the time. And, you know, I've had people tell me that they played my song at their, somebody's memorial. Um, several of my songs people have gotten married to um, people have used my songs during breakups they've you know it's just all over the map I've had a lot of uh, mostly guys some women but mostly guys that have told me over the years that the song that was my first hit called Don't Mean Nothing which is a rock and roll song 
They said, that's my anthem, man. Don't mean nothing. It's like, it's about sort of like, it's, a, it's pretty cynical. I was young when I wrote it, but it was sort of like, you know, being frustrated by your job and stuff like that. And I've had so many guys say, man, that's my anthem. When I write songs for my own selfish purposes that then become, like you said, a soundtrack or part of the soundtrack to somebody's events in their lives, the only word I keep coming back to is humbling. It's really humbling because it's not what I intended to do. I just wrote it for myself. When people take something that I wrote for my own personal reasons and that it means something to them. And, but I get it because I, there are so many songs by other people who are the soundtrack of my life. You know, my songs are not actually the soundtrack to my life. The soundtrack to my life are pe other people's music. So I totally get it. And speaking of writing songs, tell us about your latest album, Songwriter. Well, I, I had this idea for a while, starting during the pandemic. I, uh, you know, I've written so many songs for all different kinds of artists. So I've written R&B songs, like with Luther, for Luther and with Luther. Uh, a lot of country songs with Keith Urban and Vince Gill and um, Darius Rucker and different people. Um, a lot of pop songs, obviously. And so I thought... As a songwriter, it's never been a question that I could write rock songs, pop songs, right? But as a singer, you're sort of taught to stay in your lane, to like stick to a style. And so I thought at this point in my career and in my life, why wouldn't I just do whatever I want? And so I love all different kinds of music. And so I ended up writing five pop songs, five rock songs, five country songs and five beautiful ballads. And, and, you know, there was a moment where we thought, I thought, well, maybe it's just five, four separate albums that I'll just keep going. But I thought, no, it's going to put it all in one 20 song album. Um, you know, at this stage of my life, uh, to have a, an album be so well received, um, have it go on the charts and have a song that, from it that did really well on the charts and have people just sort of like it is really gratifying after all these years. I'm sure. And you're currently on tour for it, too. How's it going? It, the tour has been really great, but I um, and we, you know, I yeah, I guess we did call it the songwriter tour for a while. But, you know, at this point, I'm like a lot of artists who are older. We just touring and doing concerts is just kind of what our job is now, more than making records. So when people say actually, it's a joke that when people say, are you on tour? I say, not really. I'm just doing shows because <laughs> I just do sort of a greatest hit show all around the world all the time. So even if I'm promoting an, the new album like Songwriter, I'm only doing two or three songs from it. And the rest of the show is all the hits that I've had over the years. I love playing all those hits. I don't get tired of them. Um, it's always exciting to go someplace new where I've never played. And that keeps happening somehow. Like last on the last European tour, I played in Bulgaria and... Um, and I've played in Sri Lanka and I've played and I'm going back to China, I think, at the end of this year and um, just finished a tour in Australia. Um, but also, you know, Vietnam and I've played Alaska and like you, you name it. I've practically I've played almost everywhere, but there's still a lot of places I haven't played. And that's sort of my goal now. Like I've never played in Greece. I've never played in um, Poland. You know, so there are definitely some places that I want to go and play that I haven't yet. But that's really what my job is now. It's just I'm a 
touring performer. I hope I can see you sometime. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. And what is the proudest accomplishment of your professional life? You know, you've had 14 number one hits. I mean, you've had such a successful Mm -hmm. long career. What's the proudest accomplishment of it? I think it's that it's that the it's the longevity, you know, um, I'm, there are, there's a really, really tiny percentage of people, Barbara Streisand being one of them for Springsteen sting where they're still they're They're not only have had long careers, but they're still on a gigantic level. They're still, they're still playing, you know, stadiums and I'm not, that's not me, but the fact that I can still go out and sell out a tour and sell out shows all over the world, that people still like I put out some new music and people actually play it on the radio to me, you know, 36 years into my career. That to me is like my greatest accomplishment is that people still want to show up and listen to me sing and and hear my new songs. I think that's the most, that's the thing I'm the most proud of, I guess. It's absolutely monumental. And what is the proudest accomplishment of your personal life? Oh, my sons. Um, I have uh, three sons, 32, 30, and 29, Brandon, Lucas, and Jesse. Um, They all live very near me in Los Angeles, and they're my best friends. We hang out together all the time. There are times when I'm still just their dad, and they need me to be their dad. They need advice, or they need uh, help with something. But for the most part, they're just my best friends. We hang out together all the time, and the relationship that I have with them is... uh, I think extraordinary. If, you know, I had an extraordinary relationship with my own parents, and now that they're gone, having this kind of thing with my sons is the greatest thing in the world. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. It was great talking. It's my pleasure, Rebecca. I hope to meet you in person one of these days. Yeah, I hope so. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. You too. I took for granted all the times that I thought would last somehow. I hear the laughter, I taste the tears, but I can't get near you now. Oh, can't you see it, baby? You've got me.